Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. I almost said welcome to Tarkarta. <laughs> Did you guys listen? Did you guys listen? I'm in my brain is just totally fried. Did you guys listen to Car Talk when you were younger? Yeah. My yeah. car was stuck on uh, NPR for high school, so I listened to all those shows. Oh, really? Is that like a is that an assimilation tactic that your parents were, <laughs> were using yeah. to make it to make sure that you fit in with all the liberal white northeasterners that you're going to encounter in the Ivy in. League? Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah. I didn't realize there was a whole uh, regional class element to it. It was just like a lot of jazz at nighttime. Ah, uh, so <laughs> they weren't like one day you're going to have a roommate named jordan or maybe maybe josh you know and you're gonna need to know these cultural references that uh here's here's garrison keeler yeah. <laughs> and, and <Prairie> companion <laughs> you could talk to them about about uh wait wait don't tell me and car talk <laughs> this american life yeah i don't know that's probably a good plan honestly you know that way the kids <laughs> will be comfortable and they won't just go to college and only hang out with like other Asian kids from the state that they're in, which, you know, is a totally fine thing to do. But is, you know, why'd you go to the Ivy Leagues if you're just going to hang out with those kids? Do you think, right? But do you think NPR has gravitas still? I think that might be a 1990s thing. It's not thing. gravitas. It's more just like a shared cultural, cultural experience that you reference. can speak to your roommate about, you know, <laughs> so that you don't end up being seeming so foreign to them. And if uh, and then that way you have a more broad social life than just hanging out with like the kids in right. the Asian American Association, yeah. right? I just don't know if they're listening to Fresh Air right now. Um. Uh, they probably listen to it in the car, much like you. Yeah, you know, okay. they all yeah, you all grew up the same apparently. You all. Um, all right. Wow. What a yeah. By the way, I'm not advocating. I'm not saying that kids who hang out and just with AA Asian American was AAAA or whatever are bad. I'm just saying that, you know, most likely the kids who are in that group are not going to be super rich and help you start your own like tech firm or something out of college, which is the whole point of going to Harvard or Columbia or one of these Ivy league schools. Am I right? Right. <laughs> you just want to meet like the super rich and then bleed them. And if you just go hang out and talk about fucking Yu-Gi-Oh and Pokemon cards with other Asian kids, <laughs> Chances are, you know, you're going to have to at some point ask one of these rich people think, for money. I think get rich. And at that point, you should talk to them about NPR. Yu-Gi-Oh! <laughs> Yu-Gi-Oh! Cards. Yeah, it might be that there are enough Asian people where, like, you know, maybe there's enough Asian people where white people will have to start talking. I like, say, uh, learning about it's like, legal it's, legends. It's like 14-year-old blurds. It's not. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think, I think in the next generation, the white people are going to talk to the Asian like, kids to get rich. You know? Yeah. That would be cool <laughs> if, like, you had, like, some white kid from, uh, you know, like, Scarsdale, New York, or, like, uh, you know, uh, Maplewood, New Jersey, or something like that, or, or even, like, Marblehead, Massachusetts, and they come up and, like, I really love BTS, you know, you're like, listen, I know what you're doing. <laughs> Contact my assistant. I, appreci I, I appreciate it, but <laughs> anyway, wow, what a, that's, okay, I'm here with Andy and Tammy. It's always a good thing to start off being racist on the show, so we got that out of the way. Um, we have a very full episode for you today. We have a central question, which I think a lot of people are asking. Actually, it's the same one that Tony Soprano asked at the beginning of The Sopranos, which was like, <laughs> yeah, is the United States in decline? 
I've been watching a lot of Sopranos. I've been rewatching The Sopranos, and really, the whole show. Right at the beginning, he's just like, "Guys used to do it this way, and now they don't." Do, you know, and now all my guys are not like the guys that were the guys of my father's generation. And the whole thing is about how America sort of decaying, and that's he sees that obviously through the loyalties that people pay him on the show and everything like that, and you know how certain institutions that used to be okay have their own code are starting to fall apart. Right. Mm-hmm. Yes. So we are asking the same question that <laughs> Tony Soprano asked Dr. Melfi at the beginning of The Sopranos. It's like, are, has COVID, and I think a lot of people are saying this, and so it's not some sort of novel idea, but we wanted to pose the question is like, has the coronavirus response exposed something about a country in decline? I think we can all agree that it has not pushed the country into decline. Is that right? I think it's true. Okay. Nobody like this was our this was the the groundwork for this was already there. And um, we were like kind of yeah, puffing it up right. with well, fake that's, stuff. That's it's our, further pushed us into decline. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, I think the causes were there. That's our consensus, but obviously the people in power want to make it seem as superficial and freakish as possible. Right. right. Yeah. And natural, yeah. like natural disaster. This whole right. thing of inevitability. The the biggest indicator, I think, or the thing that people talk about the most about the sort of decline of America is the vaccine rollout, which, uh, according to David Wallace Wells, who's in my fantasy basketball, or he was in my fantasy baseball <laughs> league. I don't think he is anymore. He, I don't know if I'm supposed to say that in there, but it's fine. Hello. Um, he, uh, he wrote a piece in set that basically said that the U.S. COVID vaccine is a disaster already. Um, Everyone has seen tweets saying stuff like, you know, like 40% of people in Ohio who are like frontline workers are not getting, do not want to get vaccinated. I think in Riverside County in LA, it was 50%, right? 50% of frontline workers said that they would not get vaccinated. Um, So those are scary headlines, right? But outside of that, it's really just an administrative story and a federal state story where the federal government bought up all this vaccine, they shipped it out. And there's no real, they didn't give any sort of instruction or infrastructure or money to actually have this thing distributed. There's stories that like today, there's this tweet out. Did you see the story about how like somebody, there's a guy who had two vaccine doses left and and they're about to go bad. And so he just gave them to his friends. (laughs) It's like, what am I supposed to do? Like, there's no one to give this to. Um, And so depending on how you look at it, it is a story of too much red tape, right? Too much attempts to like make the perfect out. the perfect sort of rollout that hits every single population that needs it the most. And in trying to create that, we've actually made it too difficult, right? Or it's a story of government incompetence or it's a story of greed. I don't know what, how you want to say it, but like it's something has happened where this thing is not functioning in the way that they said it was. So in David's piece, he writes, as a whole, the country has administered barely 10% of even the first doses allotted and 30 million and 20 million identical doses are being reserved for a second shot. A group modeling the Canadian rollout suggested that rushing to get as many first doses as possible out and waiting for a new supply to deliver the second dose could avert as many as 34 to 42% of new infections, which is why Canada has now embraced that approach, as has the United Kingdom. Um, So part of the problem is also that here in the United States, because this it takes two two shots, right, to make sure that you're vaccinated, um, they're afraid that there will be some sort of supply chain problem and that all the people that they give the first dose to are going to uh, basically not get the second dose, 
right? And the chances of that happening, I think, are pretty small, honestly. But they, you know, this is the protocol that they chose instead of just going out and giving the doses out to everybody to have the first dose. And there's no real proof out there that the second dose is really necessary. But there, I saw some estimates that said if the first dose makes you 85 percent, uh, you know, immune to coronavirus, and the second dose will make you 95 percent, mm. right? And so we're talking about a 10 percent thing. Yeah. Um, which if you think numerically, it's better, way better to have twice as many people yeah. at 80% than, yeah. than, you know, half the number of people at 95%. Yeah. Um, he also writes later in the piece, because of the dramatic age skew of the disease, vaccinating the small number of very old people, this is about old people, has an astonishing impact on mortality risk. According to one assessment of the Israeli approach, Israel is leading the world in vaccines, but, you know, obviously, you know, Palestinians aren't getting them, which focuses on protesting the elderly first. Vaccinating just a 0.5% of people over 90 drops the total fatality risk by 19%. Vaccinating the 2.5% of people over 80 cuts it fully in half. And vaccinating the 7.5% over 70 drops it by three quarters. Okay. And we're not really doing that either because we're vaccinating every single medical worker. Yeah. And like, not just medical worker, but people who like work in administrations yeah. at hospitals and who have not been inside of a hospital in the past like nine months. Jay Stanford. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, it's not just Stanford. It's like, like I know people personally who are just like, yeah, you know, somebody asked me if I want to, they like work really? in like, you know, yeah, like they're like administrators God. for like, for like HMOs and stuff like that. Huh. And they, they've, they've all been vaccinated at Jesus. this point. Uh, Okay, so what 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 do we make of the response so far of the vaccine? Or like, is it as like? Here's the first question: Like, are you alarmed? <laughs> yes. Andy, are you alarmed? Yes. Uh, is uh, is another factor the fact that there's like multiple vaccines? There's like the Pfizer. There's the Moderna. No, I don't. I think that's a plus. But you can't just like take the Pfizer then take the Moderna, can you? No, no, yeah. no, no. They're totally two totally different. Right. Like, so I was thinking like that's another administrative thing you have to like. Oh, for the second, you mean? You have to keep track of it. You can't just, they're not completely fungible in that sense, but I don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm like, I haven't read it too much on it. I just kind of keep waiting for the updates and reading all the, um, hopefully reading the, uh, the, like the latest press release from Biden or from Fauci that's saying that hopefully we can, you know, we are off to a bad start. They didn't meet their New Year's goals, but they, you know, I think Fauci said they hope to have 100 million doses in the first 100 million, first 100, 100 days Biden's administration, yeah. which would be March or Aprilish, and then be it'd be like a third of the country, yeah. right? Um, um, and maybe they could double that Tammy, if they did this single dose thing. I don't know. Um, yeah, Tammy, what do you think about the? How, how, how have you responded just, to the? My, I have unfortunately not been. I sort of thought this is how it would go because it it replicates what happened with testing. To me, I just keep thinking like, I don't think federalism works. Like I, yeah. I just really am. I don't know. I <laughs> Andy's pulling up all his old state fed <laughs> debate cards in his head. Yeah, I wanted to like know when you guys had to say like from, from, from ninth grade debate. debate yeah, novice debate. Yeah. It just <laughs> seems fed. like so messed up. I mean, I was thinking that because like Washington, Oregon, and California have had this COVID vaccine consortium that has worked pretty well to my understanding, uh -huh. in which they've been helping each other set up you know distribution networks but also they actually did a double layered like approval where basically the feds approved the vaccines and then this three-state consortium also had their own 
like approval layer of it. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I, I just, you know, I mentioned this a couple minutes ago, but I do, I do think this whole thing about experimenting with localism and regionalism is going to grow because it just doesn't work. Like it doesn't work to do something that every single person needs yeah. in at three different administrative levels that do not communicate with each other. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I, you know, and yeah. it just, it completely breaks me that this is what's happening. The one thing I'll say is I do think we should respect people. I don't know if this is going to get me in trouble. I do think we should respect. <laughs> oh, no. Or just really <laughs> Tammy starts off with Tucker, Tucker Carlson. Is I know. I'm like, <laughs> for like the unions, like all the healthcare unions are not, are against mandatory right. vaccination. You talked about this in your article yeah. too. Right. Yeah. And I just, I'm curious what you guys think about that. Um, I think from a worker's rights perspective, given what's happened this year, I understand why people want to preserve people's right to say no. Yeah. And I think that's true of the residents in SNFs too. Like, it's not like if they don't want to get it, they get kicked out. Yeah. Um, so I think that's right, but it is a concern, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Look, the number of transmissions that are happening in hospitals between patients and healthcare staff is pretty low. Yeah. Like in hospitals, I'm not talking about skilled nursing yeah. facilities, but so... I think hospital workers in well-funded hospitals where they have full PPE and stuff like that, like, you know, like the, the alarm should not be as high as it seems to be. It's just that this is the first population that right. is doing it. My concern is that if this is the healthcare professionals who should be afraid of coronavirus, who do believe in medicine, and they're right. at 40%. Like what the fuck I is going to happen when they start rolling down my street and throwing vaccine vials down the <laughs> out the back of the truck, you know? <laughs> like, what's that number going to be like? How many people are going to lie about having been vaccinated yeah. when they haven't been vaccinated, That's you true. know? Like 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 this is not like the shy Trump voter problem where it's mostly <laughs> right. made up. Like this is a real fucking thing, yeah. you know? Like like and especially in like poor communities the number of people who say they're not going to be vaccinated is very high, yeah. you know, and we know that like poor communities with essential workers are the ones who are the most at risk. Yeah. Right. Like, I think that if you walked around like wealthy parts of like Atherton, California, Hillsborough, California, Palo Alto, and you're like, none of you are ever going to get vaccinated. It would be OK. Yeah, you know, exactly. like it would like they're not going to get coronavirus anyway, as long as they can work from home. But like, you know, if it, if the no, but I bet most of those people would yeah, get vaccinated. You know? And the problem, is, yeah. the problem that we have is that the people who right. need to get vaccinated don't want to get vaccinated. The people who do want to get vaccinated probably should be totally. the ones who like go last, you know. So um, I don't know. I, I, I have a hard time with this because I think that a lot of the disaster calls, right, are based on Trump's projection that this is what we're going to do and trump's projection on what we're going to do is always bullshit Mm -hmm. right like it was always like a hundred million people by the new year of course that wasn't going to happen and so when people are like we only have 10 percent of what trump said it's like now suddenly you like trust everything this fucking guy says (laughs) like you know (laughs) um now like what you what he says should be taken seriously and that it was like a reasonable thing to say in the first place like like there's a lot of charts that have come out that have charted tracked like the different Corona, the, num- the number of people in a country that yeah. are vaccinated. Israel is at the top by far. Something like seven out of 100 people in Israel have already been vaccinated. That number might be higher now. Bahrain is number two. Everybody else is kind of like where we are, you know, like all of Western mm-hmm. Europe, everything like that. And so I don't know. It, it's like hard to like look at Israel and Bahrain and be like, oh, my God. You know, it's like maybe Israel and Bahrain are pretty pre- like particular places you know maybe we should compare ourselves to 
other countries that seem to be having the yeah. same problems with rollout that we're having. Yeah. I don't know. So I, I think that some of this is a little bit alarmist. And yet at the same time, I don't, I look down the road and I don't understand how we're going to do this. Yeah. You know, like, I don't understand any part of how we're going to do it. And I think that the one thing that Ben, uh, that not Ben, I'm sorry, Ben is his brother. But one thing that Dave brings up that is like true and that a lot of people have said is that like, I don't know, like it's like, maybe maybe like maybe there are there maybe there is too much red tape you know maybe we should just grab every single old people we we see walking down the street or in a car and just like fire off some vaccine at them yeah. <laughs> because oh my god uh, just picturing like guns like vaccine <laughs> guns <laughs> and and yeah uh, go ahead no, i mean as, as the supply increases you would think that there'd be fewer um you know like means testing for all this and it would just like the ideal would be it's universal right everyone who wants one gets one so i think um i've been hopeful that as supply ramps up and more of them get approved that you know like the astrazeneca has that even been approved yet by the united states yeah it was it it was it was approved in europe right yeah so they're like they have Um, more supply than pfizer and moderna i I think right so that that should be a big big boost um so, but is that even the issue? I mean, it's hard to know what exactly the issue is, right? Well, I think it's because of scarcity that leads to like we have to prioritize. But if there's not as much scarcity, I would assume, I don't know. I assume like there's some sort of inverse relationship between scarcity and like yeah. all the all the requirements and like, you know, conditions they're attaching to it. Because if it's like there's one for everyone in the town, then, you know, that's not a sure. less of an yeah. issue. I, I, wonder. I also think... I also just think that some of the exceptions are being blown up a little bit too much, you know, like these places where they say they're like, you know, they're like, oh, my God, that story I told you about where people like freaking out being like, oh, my God, he gave away two doses to his friends. It's it reminds me a little bit of like the first relief package, right, where every single person that got a PPE loan that was rich, everyone freaked out about. And you're like, look, this is going to fucking happen. They got to throw basically a giant pile. They have to make it rain on the entire country. Like, you know, some bills are going to end up, you know, um, I they, they shame, they shame the Lakers into giving it, you know, like that, that's basically what they shame the Lakers into giving it back. So it does work. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> but that we doesn't mean the entire program extent. was a failure, yeah. you know, or it's, right. it's the same way that people are like freaking out being like, all we get is six, all we got was $600. Like, no, that's not all you got. You know, like there's a lot of unemployment benefit, all sorts of stuff happened. And you have to talk about those things and then you then you can assess it. And I think the vaccine rollout is somewhat similar in that I really do think basically the two refrains are Israel's doing a better job than us. Be like, well, okay, you know, Israel is always going to do a better job than us. And then the second thing is like, we're letting vaccine go to waste. Be like, you're trying to give out millions of shots, you know, uh, and there's all around this massive country. Some of the shots are going to yeah. go to waste. I don't know. Am I being too optimistic here? I feel like we'll figure this out. One thing I wonder if anyone has anyone actually like, I don't know what the ethics of this is, like talk to people who refused it and like what their reasoning is, because I think we're assuming it's anti-vax stuff. But um, I'd be kind of curious to, I mean, it's, to know about that. It's like it's like the fastest vaccine made in the history yeah, of mankind by right. five times, you know. Yeah. So the MR, the Moderna, the Moderna one is like an experimental technology that like all scientists and all pharmacists, all chemists thought was like a joke three years right, ago. Right. You know, they're like, oh yeah, that MR, it was like 
it was like Bitcoin or something <laughs> like that. It was like the Bitcoin of medicine. And then suddenly like, we're going to put it I'm, like, I, that's not an exaggeration. That's what it, I was talking to my dad about this, who, you know, was a chemist yeah. and he was like, he was like, yeah, we used to just make fun of that stuff. <laughs> you know, like it was like for crazy people. It was all theoretical. And now wow. <laughs> he's like, I can't believe it worked, you know? And oh like God. the implications, if it does work are insane Frightful. because like this new, if the technology works yeah. much like it's Bitcoin, like, not to turn it, this into a Bitcoin evangelist thing, but you know, it could take over the entire world. Like you could come up with ways to like prevent cancer and stuff like that through yeah. through mrna technology if it happens but it's still yeah. fucking brand new right. you know three years ago it was being laughed out of the room and now like you're asking all these people to take it of course it's, people are going to be resistant to it they they did almost no testing on pregnant women for example you know like so with pregnant women they're like i don't know yeah. you know it's your choice yeah. you know so i don't know it, it's difficult the, the other thing is like we always talk about anti-vaxxing as like this very american thing but i, I do wonder like what the response is around the world as these get rolled out like is there an, a significant absence of anti-vax sentiment around the rest of the world um because yeah i, I just wonder about that um because we do kind of think of it mm. well it's just because americans are stupid and people in like socal and or new agey and whatever but maybe there is actually a lot more um it's a more it's a broader sentiment or it might be an american specific sentiment in reaction to like how yeah. private how privatized and for-profit american medicine is but I think, I think it, some go ahead, Tammy. Yeah, I was just going to say, I think it does exist. And I've heard, I mean, I was just having a conversation about anti-vaxxing in Germany, for example. I do think it exists in other places for similar reasons that it exists here. But yeah, it might be exacerbated just because our healthcare sector is unique in the entire world. Yeah, right. You know? Yeah. But I, I also think some countries like have a shorter, have like the distance of when people are being like wiped out by smallpox or mm. tb or something like that is yeah. is a little bit shorter so they probably are like yeah remember when my <laughs> uncle died <laughs> so just, i think it's easier than you know do you remember when fdr got polio <laughs> you're like no i don't i was i was not i wasn't born <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i think it's interesting um, to see what the vax roll out look in the the asian countries we've talked about so much since april you know because yeah. I mean, given that they have had very strong national responses and national rollouts of other COVID responses, yeah. I mean, it, it could potentially be quite good there, especially for the ones that, you know, don't require whatever the sub freezing levels yeah, of yeah. storage and stuff like that. Because if they could do it, for example, in Taiwan through the pharmacies, the way they yeah. did the mass, like it'll just yeah. I, I just wonder what that's going to look like. Well, if you lived in Taiwan, would you get would you get vaccinated? They, they bought about enough for a th third or half of the country already. And it's mostly the okay. Oxford one, which doesn't require, I don't, I don't think the Oxford one requires crazy you know, temperatures, right? Compared to the other no. two. Yeah, I don't think it yeah, does. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think if I lived in a country with no coronavirus, yeah. I would just like be like, I'll wait for, I'll wait for, I'll wait for the third generation of the vaccine. So. You, you yeah, want to like, exactly. take it and travel or? No. no. No, where am I going to travel to? I don't know. It's, I'm Wait, getting, I'm yeah. getting cabin fever. I want to give it to all of the old people, yeah. right? My and parents, all that. my parents, and my uncle and aunts. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I would wait. I mean, like, I'm I'm no anti-vaxer, <laughs> but if I was like, if if you I would was, wait now, if wow. I was in a country, if I was in a country where there's if no coronavirus, yeah, yeah, if I was in Taiwan, I would, I would take it. If I was in maybe Taiwan, Vietnam, and Australia are the only countries, but, you know, because even if I was in South Korea, I would take I'd probably that. get vaccinated. I would take it yeah. there, too. Um, anyway, this has turned into a referendum on our most problematic opinion, so <laughs> let's let's move on. 
Um, all right, so we're going to talk about China a little bit, just because you know, as, as in the middle of our conversation about coronavirus, I was like, we've, I think we've talked about this too much. <laughs> I'm getting exhausted talking about it. Like, I don't really. Do you, have you got? I, I have such COVID news fatigue. Maybe it's just because I spent so long writing that stupid article, uh, but I was like, <laughs> I don't like all the all the vaccine stuff. People freaking out. I'm just like, whatever, it's fine. Yeah, you know. I'm like kind of whatever it's fine about everything. Like, you know, that bean dad controversy. I was like, whatever. You know, I don't know what it's it fine. is. I, I mean, still don't know what it yeah. is. I didn't okay, check. Twitter. Don't worry about don't it. Don't tell us. Don't tell <laughs> us. I'm not going to tell you. All I know, the official position of, of our podcast for all three of us is that bean dad is fine and that people should stop bullying him. All right. So <laughs> I'm not very clear what you're going to talk about. Either. Yeah, I, I don't know who Jimmy Dore is either. Wait, you guys don't know no. who Jimmy Dore I mean, is? I, like, how is I that possible? Out. Andy, I thought that you would, you would have read like 15 no, Facebook not, threads no. filled with like 47-year-old academics <laughs> who are just freaking out about <laughs> Jimmy Dore. I, I feel like that's in the sort of like, you know, like Taibi helper space of the internet that wow. I can't avoid. Taibi helper. Am I wrong? I don't know. I developed this thing called the Taibi test over the week. And I, I was like, What's that? and I think it's a, I think it's a good test. It's basically you that, you know, the charge that parts of the media are that the media has been overtaken by a bunch of like a parade of, of like young wokes that are brut- brutal and are trying to like seize power and uh, <laughs> basically just print press releases from activists and, mm-hmm. you know, have no concerns about objectivity and truth and uh, are you know, trying to like destabilize the entire industry or destroying journalism. Like overall, that's a ridiculous critique, right? But there are some places where that's true, right? And those places keep doing things that inflame the sort of reactionary press people, like the intermediate people. And so the test is like trying to figure out like, is this, is, does this piece, does this one place actually do the things that they say they're doing? Because some places yeah. do. And most places don't. But I'm not going to name a single place that passes the <laughs> Taibi test names. because <laughs> I need to have a job at some yeah. point. But trust me, there are a few. Okay. All right. So <laughs> we're going to talk about China. The This is a uh, we're going to talk about a long essay. This, this reminds me of the days of like when people would just publish like big things on Medium, you know, and then people would talk about it. But like so there's this guy named Dan Wong who's Chinese-Canadian libertarian investor tech person. You know, he's sort of like a Andrew Yang type of person, but or and also, I don't know. I, I, I know a lot of these people now in the Bay Area, and they're, you know, kind of the self-styled thinker savant type people who are super rich and, you know, they sort of weigh in on everything, right? Is that is that a good way to describe Mandy? That's my best guess. I was um, I was trying to figure it out myself this uh, uh, this week because his newsletter, which you're introducing, got kind of passed around on China Twitter this week so I, I read this and sent it on to you guys yeah and that's why we're talking about it because uh we a think that you know we we know that a lot of china twitter listens to our show <laughs> so hello china twitter hi everyone <laughs> <laughs> we won't make any chink in the armor jokes but like uh the uh the the reason why we wanted to talk about it is because I think it, it, I think it inspired a lot of conversation amongst China wonks, but also because I think the way that this guy writes it, and this is the best thing about Medium posts written by people who have you know no real ties to anything and no responsibilities, they just kind of make provocative claims. You know, broad provocative claims is fun to talk about them. So um, let's talk about the first one that they do. And Andy, I, I want your input in a lot of this, which is the first claim he makes is first. China is more dynamic and responsive than the United States with coronavirus. And I'm just going to read from what he wrote. 
This year made me believe that China is the country with the most can-do spirit in the world. This is every segment of this. This is good, right? Honestly, I think this is good writing for this type of thing. You know, it's just like broad claim. And then, you know, every segment of society mobilized to contain the pandemic. One manufacturer expressed astonishment to me at how slowly Western counterparts moved. U.S. companies had to ask whether making masks aligned with the company's core combat or core competence. Chinese companies simply uh, decided that making <laughs> money is their core competence and therefore they should be making masks. Um, That's a good uh, line. And then he goes on to talk a little bit about this. Yeah, this guy is not a bad writer. And he like, well, why, why did this guy like, what, what was it about this thing that sort of made everybody on China Twitter go crazy? I think um, what was interesting is so he's Chinese Canadian, but he's been ba- he writes this newsletter, uh, you know, based on what I read was he lived the he lives in Beijing. He lived this entire year in Beijing. So he's kind of doing what we're doing is, you know, thinking about uh, or, you know, what everyone is doing is thinking about the United States versus China. But he's coming in from a different perspective. And I think it's, I guess the I don't know if it's irony or if it's appropriate. I feel kind of um, weird saying object like this is objectively what happened in China because I don't know. I wasn't there. And you just hear so many conflicting mm-hmm. reports. Yeah. It's interesting to see like from the, his view in China where I know he's like obviously reading English language, United States media also. Um, what he thinks is going on in the United States um, by comparison without having lived in the United States this year uh, to experience what it was like. Um, so you could see how like someone living over there would say like, wow, the, the U.S. really fucked up, which is, you know, like probably not wrong. Um, <laughs> and, and how like, but it's but it's kind of put in such stark terms. And it's kind of this year in review newsletter that it kind of, I think, I think what people liked about it was like, like Jay was saying, it's so direct and simple and blunt. Instead of getting into the, like, this minutiae about like this sector, this sector, this sector, it's like this country versus this country. And like, yeah. Right. And who cares more about their own people? It's like a hot, it's like a hot take yeah. uh, generator, you know? <laughs> Tammy, what would you think about that? Like the, the core question he's asking, I think, is basically the United States has so much red tape, so much regulation, so much, so many competing interests, so many people, so many bad actors that the sort of can-do spirit that used to animate American exceptionalism, which is essentially, hey, we had Rosie the Riveter go make, you know, like she worked during the war, right? Is that right? Is that, I don't know. Or like we had like <laughs> yeah, the- people's wives turn their pots into bombs, you know, or into like uh, Jeeps to put on the Western front. No, I'm serious. This is like the mythology of sure. like what happened yeah. during World War II, like a huge crisis and everybody banded together. That this that this is gone in America now, but now it exists in China. What do you think? Yeah, I think it. Well, okay, so I do think that his critique of our manufacturing sector is correct. Like in terms of the reasons why we don't we weren't able to quickly mobilize around masks, for instance. But the thing is, I mean, he calls himself a libertarian, but like most of the stuff that you know his positive assessments of the Chinese response are based on are a strong state and strong intervention in in these policies. So I don't really know what his sort of ideological orientation is or can't quite understand it. But in another section that Andy sent us that um, maybe you'll you'll read from later, you know, I think he makes this point about how the U.S. economy now is based, its pride is centered around tech. But what exactly is tech? Like it doesn't have the same productive kind of faculty as, you know, traditional manufacturing or what this guy calls like a real economy. I think that's probably true. I mean, but I don't know that we need to necessarily fetishize having each state have its own particular manufacturing sector. I mean, hopefully we would, you know, be in a situation where there's more 
sort of cross-border yeah. cooperative action, you know, that's lacking. So I don't know. But but yeah, I think there are kernels of truth here and there in his analysis. Yeah, I mean, I think the theme that runs throughout this, you can see from, from this line where he says, Chinese companies decided that making money is their core competence. <laughs> yeah. Right, is that... So I think the libertarian aspect, you're right, he's like pro-state in a way, but he's also kind of saying um, profit incentives is what will drive people forward. Totally. Like, yeah, and, and like no them red to do tape. that, though, it'll right. respond. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. but, but I think... And like if you just say, people need masks, let's make let's masks. Right. right. It wasn't yeah. social welfare is like we can profit off sure. of Sure. Um, and I think the theme running throughout this is not that like one is communist, one is capitalist, of course, but that yeah. they're at these different stages in their development through capitalism, you know, like there's a sort of real economy manufacturing stage that he is saying China's kind of still in and many countries. Okay, let's read that so that everyone's oriented. All right. So and then, Andy, I want your thoughts on it. So second point he makes is China's emphasis on the, quote, real economy is unparalleled globally and versus United States, Europe and East Asia. This emphasis on growth makes it less likely for China to develop into American uh, complacency or decadence. With its emphasis on the real economy, it is trying to avoid the fate of Hong Kong, where local elites have reorganized their productive forces completely around sustaining high property prices and managing mainland liquidity flows. With its emphasis on economic growth, it cannot be like Taiwan, whose single bright corporate beacon is surrounded by a massive uh, firms undergoing genteel decline. With its emphasis (laughs) on manufacturing, it cannot be like the UK, which is so successful in sounding the clever industry's television or in the clever industries, television, journalism, finance, and universities, while seeing a falling shore of R&D intensity and a uh, global loss of standing among its largest firms. Okay, so that's what you're talking about. Yep, go ahead. Yeah, it's interesting. Also, that that Taiwanese firm he's mentioning, by the way, is Taiwan Semiconductor, which is, uh, we've talked about, I know it's uh, powering Tammy's new computer right now. And for (laughs) anyone who's followed the news, I think with semiconductors, it's really interesting how Taiwan kind of dominates the whole field. Um, it's interesting that I think his general economic history is not wrong, like in the sense that manufacturing has now been kind of monopolized by China in many ways. And places that used to do a lot of manufacturing, like United States, East Asia, Western Europe, don't as much anymore. He does kind of frame it in this very like subjectivist way, which is like, well, they just didn't choose to. And, we're, yeah. and, and China's going to choose to. As if there was as if it was a decision that anyone ever made, right? Like yeah. these are forces that are beyond their control and it's actually useful to think about. And when like Taiwan and Hong Kong and I mean, basically all these places kind of quote unquote lost their manufacturing, it's because precisely of, of the rise of China or the rise of some other newcomer, et cetera. So I think, I, I think this is interesting because it's giving us an interesting like comparative look at like, well, how does the United States stack up to China and these other countries now? But I would also say, like, that it's kind of a certain, this is, like, the problem with thinking about these things in national terms. Yeah, Yeah, it's almost like he's talking about it, like, well, England put on a blue shirt, and the United States put on a red shirt, and China woke up and put on a green shirt, and green shirts are good, you know? Like, it it sort of cuts out, it makes it seem like it's a personal choice made by, like, a thing that's a country that has its own consciousness. But I mean, what, Tammy, what do you think? What do you think about this idea, though? Because I think there is something in there that is worth thinking about, which yeah. is what he's essentially talking about is decadence, right? He's talking about decadence of Hong Kong. He's talking about the decadence of the United States. He's talking about the decadence of uh, the UK, where things are reoriented to basically maintain the elites and that nothing else happens 
that the entire economy is structured so that some people get to hold whatever cachet that they have. Now, yeah. this is, I don't know, this sounds pretty real. It sounds a lot like New York to me, yeah. right? Yeah. Where real London estate and prices York, and sure. the real estate yeah. industry runs everything and that you have a group of elites that are basically using every tool that they have culturally and, and in terms of influence to make sure that that stays the same, that property values stay high, that, yeah. you know, real estate stays the same, that, 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 you know, New York is still a place where everybody, every hopeful goes to work under the illusion that they're going to get rich when in reality, it's probably, they're there to like prop up and service the wealthy people there. And that maybe manufacturing is a different way, right? Cause everyone goes into the factory and everyone works together <laughs> and they actually make a real thing. What, what do you think about that? Well, I find that I've, every time somebody uses the word decadence, I just, it starts to feel like a Soviet tract, which is <laughs> anyway, this is very like propagandistic, but um, I guess what this raised for me is it. Yeah. Cause what, yeah, Jay, what you're describing is this kind of like professional managerial march. Right. And yeah. I'm wondering though, Andy, you were talking about like the stages of history and this and yeah, I mean, to some extent, he's he's making yeah he he's alighting this fact that you know some of this isn't by choice, but I think he's also suggesting that there are state policies that can essentially freeze that stage of history, right, and incentivizes so it doesn't go away quite quite as fast. I mean, and China has so many people that it's like you can't really compare it to other right. countries very well, right. but um, you know, I mean, I think the kind of fetishization that Jay is describing is part of the reason why manufacturing like left us so quickly and why we allowed it to and why through our like obsession with like the free market and free yeah. trade policies manufacturing left. So, yeah. you know, I mean, yeah, I guess I just wonder what you guys think about maybe there is a way in which you can freeze it. Also, maybe given what the U.S. is now, it's going to need to make decisions about whether it needs to like step back those stages of history. Yeah. Yeah, like when you read economics, like history stuff, there's always these models, right? And those models are kind of, the first was kind of based on this English model and this US model. Right. And then I think East Asia has its own model that Japan started that everyone else copied, ending with China, which is having an industrial policy, having a government agency dedicated right. to building its industry. It's called MITI, mm -hmm. MITI. It's kind of, I don't know, famous for some people. Um, but after a while, it's like... <laughs> people you know, I don't know. Like, we're, we're those who are studying station economy i guess <laughs> yeah okay um uh, <laughs> um but at some point you're like you're paying japan and taiwan to china like at some point the model yeah. and that's and we're talking about 200 years of history at some point like you just have these model breaking right. examples like 21st century china run by the communist party but also using industrial policy you know exactly and it's like china's comp, comp the only comparable to china's in it is the united states and the united states has like a third of the population so what yeah. is the comparison really um and uh well, and the other yeah. thing here he talks about is like how like the hong kong thing i think is very funny but i mean if you actually look at the acquisition of wealth in china all of those billionaires aren't just from manufacturing like real estate yep. is a huge driver of the building of billionaires in China. Yeah. Okay. So I think like yeah. all of that land speculation and stuff, that is a universal strategy that is like well-practiced in China. So there's a yeah. bit of fantasy here. There is, yeah. but... But there's more manufacturing sure. billionaires in China than Definitely. there are in other countries. And, and he later so. talks about how, you know, and this is his point, right? That it was kind of heading in this direction. And his he's like the only person who's like believes in Xi Jinping these days. But like yeah. Xi Jinping has stepped in and the party has stepped in and they're saying like, we should never allow ourselves to go in this direction. That's these other countries that have let finance and right. real estate take over 
we need to focus on the real economy. And that's the problem with the United States. They never had, <laughs> they never had someone who was like, we're never going to let go of the real economy. Right. And they kind of let it get to- taken over by finance. The thing that struck me is that like, uh, on that point, Andy, is that like the argument that he's making is so reminiscent of nostalgia that, that about like the 1950s America, mm-hmm. right? Like about people working in the same job, having a pension, um, working in a factory, making real things, American made things yeah. and living in communities where everyone worked at the factory and, you know, people work together. I don't know, in North Carolina, it would be for RJR. Yeah. Uh, well, I like for RJ, whatever, RJ Reynolds. Yeah. And then Detroit, it would be like everybody in the Detroit area working for Ford, right? Or, or Chrysler or GM. Yeah. Boeing in Washington state. Yeah. For, uh, Boeing in Washington state. Yeah. Right. And that, that this is his model of China. And I think that it's, I don't know, I think that's part of the appeal of it, why people are responding to it. And I think that that there is this sort of way to frame China this way that I think might actually be appealing to a lot of Americans who are feeling that, you know, things might've been better in this era that they didn't live through, um, where there actually was like a middle class where, you know, somebody could get a job in a factory out of high school. Yeah and save up like is that actually true in china like you know like it is that myth is that myth also animating china like does china feel good about that myth about itself like does it, I does think, it feel like it's america i think for the average chinese person china it was true until the last few years and i think now yeah. i mean yeah. another headline that happened this week this is going to get very a little bit nerdy but there's talk of this term in chinese which is like um it was this term that was only talked about in the like economic history seminars called involution and it was like like mm-hmm. ten people in the world knew what this word was. They they all took like economic history in, in grad school and, ch- and Chinese history, but apparently it's like broken out to the mainstream. And now all these like teenagers in China are constantly talking about involution. And the basic concept is diminishing returns. That at some point, after an economy or society develops to a certain level, it starts to decline. And apparently, it's like now like investors and like young people and people in Chinese tech are talking about it. So I think the med- middle class person in China is now beginning to question, um, you know, if, if we're going to see endless growth. Like, I think that was what the golden age of... How, how does that express itself? Like, you know, like, how do you see that that's happening? How, how are people going out and, and like, how, what are the, what are sort of the bellwethers that show like posting that that's online. true? There's been a big protest against <laughs> uh, this thing called 996, if you've, have you heard of that, mm-hmm. which is, and this yeah. was, uh, 996 stands for working from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m., six days a week. Um, and there's been like a lot of people in Chinese tech who have who've kind of called out this notion of a 996 culture that these companies expect all their workers to work. What is it? 12 times 6, 72 hours, 72 hours a week, right? Um, um, nonstop um, on the assumption that like if you're young, you can be exploited forever. And um, you, but then you'll have skin in the game when you get, yeah. and you'll get rich later. And I think a lot of yeah. people are getting disillusioned with that. Um, mm. I don't know. Like, there's there's strikes in China, but they don't get talked about very much. And I think for like 996 is mostly about like a lot of online petitioning, or just a lot of mm-hmm. just like talk online. I don't I don't know if it's gonna. So it's hard to figure out what the actual scale is well, because of that. And I think like Jay, the picture you're describing of mid-century America is different, also because the sense of community and the hard-won labor rights that make that period something to be nostalgic about like don't that's not the same as what this guy is talking about or like what exists for 
the mass workers of China who are like my internal migrants, yeah. you know, essentially like doing seasonal migratory work who don't have labor unions, who don't have benefits. And so I think like that picture is very different. It seems like more of a sort of, I don't know, like a collective rise and an eventual like ascent, but the sense of kind of like, oh yeah, this, um, you know, the post-war prosperity thing is not the same. So I think the labor I, I think part it is, of that. I think it is, though. I mean, outside of, like, you know, union issues, I think that basically he's saying people in China make real things and they get paid to make real things and they have some sense of upward mobility in that country, whereas every in other places, working-class people don't have that because they're essentially just being kept in place by, like, a decadent ruling class that's decaying every single day. You know, like, I think that's what the difference is. Yeah, and I think, um, I mean, I think that's, like, I think Tammy's right. That wasn't, that hasn't been true for millions and millions of people in China at the lowest rung. For sure, for sure. But it wasn't true for millions right. and millions of people in the United right. States, like anyone who wasn't white, for example, right. in the 1950s. I do think, right? so. I do think, I do think, just from a, like, quantitative perspective, yeah, there was a middle class that rose during this moment of when there's like a, a huge slack in the economy for it to rise. But it, it's kind of, China seems to have kind of hit this kind of crossroads that the United States also hit in the 60s and 70s. And we all know, you know, we're yeah. just talking about that. Yeah. Like what, what, what this happened? should be the tanky argument, by the <laughs> this way. Is, the tanky should just make this argument. This is super tanky. Like instead yeah. of getting mad at like, uh, getting mad about like four people who tweet about like uh, Uyghurs, yeah, yeah, you know? Yeah. No, this is, this is, in my opinion, the most sophisticated tanky thing I've ever read. I know. Look, this is why we're reading it because we're obsessed with tankies here. All right. So the third point he makes is, this will be the last one we go and then we'll talk about something well, else. But China is bad at, quote, cultural soft power. And his quote is, China's most successful cultural exports include TikTok, the three, the three body problem. Wow. Yeah, I guess this so, is right? It's a very like, sneering passage. It's hilarious. No, but is it? Is, I, I guess like, is, is the three body, is, is Qixin Liu, however you pronounce his name, is he really that big of a deal? I, so. I don't know. I get to talk Not about really. it. You read him, didn't you? I think he's a very yeah, big deal, first, but this I read the first book. funny I'll, passage. You know, it's... I don't know if that the first show's gonna the get first book now. was by the way it was great. It was um, oh, yeah. The three body prom and a few art house films, mostly directed by Jia Zhangqi. Yeah. Is that the guy who made like the, I saw this Chinese art film that was incredible. It was like one of the weirdest films I've ever seen. What was it, and it, it was like I forget, but it blew something. But it was like blue orange maybe. It was uh it was shot in this like mountainside town that was just fucked up you know like very very poor and they did this uninterrupted shot because this river goes through the middle of the town and it was like one of the most beautiful things i've ever seen um and uh i don't know i feel like chinese art films are really good and so i don't appreciate there's a lot i don't know i don't know i think he's right because most most chinese films are have to be censored if they're political or controversial no no i agree i agree and this one this guy i think <laughs> yeah. made it in germany or something oh, like france or something like that I think yeah. I, oh, and that might be it okay <laughs> anyway not to go on too much of a detour but this great rate great great podcasting it's like there's this movie i saw i don't remember the name <laughs> yeah, and i'm just gonna really vaguely useful. describe a scene of it i don't remember really anything else though, about it but anyway okay. <laughs> today the series more looks like something that was able to be uh, escape from the system rather than vanguard of a great Chinese outpouring of marvelous cultural uh, creations. The lack of compelling cultural creations matters for many reasons. One of them is that people who've never been able to make a visit cannot fully uh, visualize the life of an ordinary Chinese person. Only the dystopia that has 
uh, be- that has become the way that most foreigners think about the country. Yeah, this is the most thank you. I think that's stuff. true. I know, seriously. I think that's true. You know that dude, uh, Pang Zai? Do you know yeah, who that the is? Hanan, the, the guy who gets drunk a lot. The, who? Yeah, oh, yeah the, Pang, Pang Zai. Tammy, do you know who this guy is? He's like this Twitter okay, meme. Which... We're going to talk about him for the rest of that fucking episode because it's amazing. There's this guy in China, right? Yeah. And he's like, he, he advertises himself. Andy, please. If I say something wrong, just jump in. <laughs> I don't actually he watch advertises it. advertises himself. You tell me. Oh, I watch it. I watch every video he does. He advertises himself as like, a, a, he's like, I am just a poor peasant in the country, Chinese countryside. But he started making these videos where he just starts, he drinks an insane amount of booze in a small period of time. And he, he perfected this technique of drinking beer out of a bottle where he spins it and it makes a whirlpool in the bottle and then all like something about the whirlpool action pours all the beer directly down his throat and so it's like the fastest way to chug a beer possible <laughs> so he'll i don't know what liquor this is andy what's the liquor that the clear liquor that he lights on fire and then Probably is that just like vodka Baito or something like that just Baito, yeah exactly. okay. wine, which is Okay, so he like basically. So is he just he like drinks, basically a food blogger? So this but, is what I think. I think well, no, first of all, I think he got he into just, trouble at some point, but I don't know if it was. He did. Yeah, 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 yeah. But my yeah. my, it was sort of like you talked about those cooking shows that happened in the middle of the woods before. Uh-huh. Yeah. Those are all clearly backed by the state, and it's like this yeah. campaign to like get people on the internet to like romanticize China. Um, yeah. And I've watched I, those. I've gone down rabbit holes and watched like twenty episodes, <laughs> making like tofu from scratch and, make, and like yeah. f- catching your own fish and then gutting it. Yeah, um, but like, but I feel like he, I think but, I think he's also a project. That's my opinion. You really? You think he's like? You think he's been compromised? Uh, <laughs> you think? You think he's always compromised? You think he's like something didn't add up? Why is he on a VPN streaming this on Twitter? <laughs> like you know? <laughs> maybe, maybe. But so That's he would. True. He basically did these videos, and he's so sweet, and he says stuff like, you know, I'm just a humble <laughs> peasant from China. But okay, that let's does beat sound the coronavirus. Right. Let's beat the coronavirus together. You know, if we stay together, then we will defeat this virus. And then he'll drink like six <laughs> beers in like 40 <laughs> seconds. And just like you feel emotional watching it, you know, because first of all, you're just like, this is incredible. Yeah. This man is so talented. But in the second way, he always, you know, he sort of always presents himself. And then he did a series of videos where he took you around his China, Chinese town, you know, like which is a village way out in the countryside, how they eat what the market is, how food is delivered. It's the most I've learned about China in my, like in the past five years, yeah, you know, yeah. it's like, Oh, so this is how Chinese people live. I think what he's saying is true. Like we, when we think about China, we just envision a bunch of people living in like a dense uh, cloud of smog who, I don't know, eat noodles in the 10 minutes that they get off from work and then they go home and they have one child. Yeah. You know, like that's basically, the, that's a vision of China. No. Yeah, they have like one kid that's sitting there. Last night, and I never, never two. Like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I will say, you know, as like, a, you know, as the, as the most admittedly racist person on this podcast, that that's what I used to think China was like, you know, and that, and part of it, I think he's right. I think part of it is because there's no cultural products going no. out, right? So you either think it's that or you think they're like fucking, um, you know, like a kung fu fighter in like, like the 18th century, flying from bamboo tree to bamboo sure, tree, yeah. which obviously is not real, you know. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, it's so those are the two options. Fabricated, but I mean, when you guys watch K- like K drama stuff, are you like, oh, that's the real South Korea? Because that's like the obvious counterpart. Like that is a successful cultural industry, right? Um, that, yeah, foreign, but at right? least you see, you do see how Korean people. You, and you think that it was actually like, oh yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah sure. 
They live in apartments. And, you know, <laughs> yeah, that's true. The part they I have mean, like elevators with weird with weird buttons on it. Yeah, and uh, everyone has a punch code for their door. That's true in <laughs> Korea. You know, most people drive Hyundai's. That's the only part that doesn't seem real. Is like too many people in these K dramas drive like German cars. <laughs> like, I've never seen a German car in Korea. Yeah, so. <laughs> Those are but not Tim, very think, like, it's, it's, it's pretty it's pretty I think, close I think there's right? um yeah i think there's some of the stuff available it's just done poorly and no one would want to watch more than 20 seconds of it you know like when i've, I've tried to watch like um taiwanese or chinese dramas you know it's like oh like you know language practice or something and it's like it's just terribly done and it's like corny and cheap and you can see through it and so that's like the comparative advantage of the korean culture industry it's like they actually produce stuff yeah. that people who don't know anything any korean might feel compelled to watch so that's like the kind of success story that that they've produced um yeah but i don't know i don't <laughs> yeah sorry well the k-dramas are all are half propaganda no, too. Totally. Oh, I mean, I was just, it's much like, more effective it's all, like though. a lot of it's state funded and all those historical dramas are like state funded so. yeah yeah <laughs> and they're speaking but like standardized I, soul hum soul korean yeah. it's like, i love so i love all of the really bleak chinese films he's talking about so yeah. i think i don't know my i guess those are kind of like a marriage of the stereotype that he describes of China and like this beer swirling guy, <laughs> it's like a matchup of them. Cause it shows some of the joys of that life, but it's also extremely industrial and bleak. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, is Pong Zai's life, does it seem fake to you? Like, does it, is that not how, not how Chinese people out in the villages live? Um, I, I, I mean, I'm not saying they're all like horrific alcoholics who drink six beers. I, have to, uh, like, I guess know. I'd have to watch more. I don't think, I don't doubt that this person might exist. I just, I'm just like, this is what this is like what I think about all those other cooking shows is like how is this on YouTube right now? Like what is going on? Well, yeah. like this guy has to be like the a whole production company that's like just yeah. off the camera, you know. He like went viral on Chinese TikTok, right? Yeah. And then and then but then like Barstool Sports has this guy who lives in China. He's like this white dude from Boston and they do this whole show where he just talks about what his life is like in China. And actually, that one has been instructive for me to learn about China, too, is through some Barstool guy. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's only slightly ra- Like, I don't think that the guy, who, like, so he played in a Chinese football league, you know, in Beijing. Yeah, and that right. was like, it was just Wait, so what, fun. Does this guy, you know, does, does, he, does, he know, does he know Chinese? He, yeah, he can sort of speak Chinese. But he's not yeah. Chinese. Um, no, he's like a big white dude yeah, from that's Boston. That's going to be super different. You know? though. Like, that's, again. I, I, no, no, I agree. But he, my point is. He went out and to Pong Zai, oh. and then he, yeah, and so he sort of like, and he actually found you know, him. Like, yeah, oh. yeah, and they like did a bunch of videos together, okay. and they he like collapse. calls him his like, so maybe, yeah, they like he like <laughs> says he loves him and everything like that, and like you know, like they're friends, yeah. And so, uh, and then Pong Zai, of course, like appealed to the whole bar stool audience yeah. because it's like this Chinese peasant just fucking chugging yeah. beers, you know, <laughs> in this like totally cool way. <sighs> And then he and then he sort of super blew up after yeah. that, you know. So yeah. um, there is some stuff where it's not just like being state, yeah. unless you feel like Barstool Sports has been <laughs> compromised by China, <laughs> which would be an amazing story. But you know, it's not just that the state created this guy and then suddenly he was all over the. No, internet. well, like, there yeah, is okay. like That's some. Story I, I was just yeah. sort of like very suspicious about how this stuff went viral, but um, yeah. dude, because he's 
chugging like six beers in four <laughs> seconds it's amazing yeah, to watch yeah. like i've never seen anything like it and his his like swirling technique is genius <laughs> you know the fucking hurricane <laughs> now um, i have to see this okay oh no it's great timmy you might not like it but you know if you don't like it don't tell me just tell andy <laughs> um all right here's the last point that we're going to discuss about him i think we should talk about this last yeah, thing this right the, tech this is the one that i thought would be more most interesting to america okay Listeners. The U.S.'s attitude towards tech right now looks bad in comparison, in comparative and historical perspective. I wrote last year, this is a guy, not me. I wrote last year, the U.S. responded to the rise of the USSR in Japan by focusing on innovation. It's early days, but so far, uh, the U.S. is responding to the technological rise of China by kneecapping its leading firms. So instead of realizing its own Sputnik <laughs> moment, it is triggering one in China. This year, the U.S. doubled down. It produced two rounds of novel restrictions on Huawei, threatened uh, elder restrictions on Tencent and ByteOnline, forced the sale of TikTok to a U.S. corporation. Uh, for the most part, the control... Uh, what should I really, uh, U.S. agencies have been more focused on taking down Chinese firms than extending U.S. strengths. At a time when it's more important than ever to advance its semiconductor companies, the government is... Uh, crippling their sales to the, their largest and fastest growing market. When research capabilities at U.S. universities need to grow, the government is denying them students. And when the U.S. should be attracting more talent to its shore, the government has made it more difficult for people to immigrate. Thus, the United States looks committed to a strategy to destroy the scientific and industrial establishment in order to save it. <laughs> Meanwhile, in China, these actions have triggered a surge of interest in mastering technology. For the first time, arguably since the industrial rise of Japan in the 1950s, a major company is committed to thinking deeply about inventions of its own. What do you think? Um, so I won't make any predictions about the future, but I think that this is precisely the fear that is going through a lot of the heads of politicians and uh, business people in the United States. Um, my my friend uh, Jake Warner was on The Dig uh, talking about U.S.-China stuff recently and he kind of pointed out something that seems pretty obvious but he put it in pretty simple terms that if you kind of think about what is the united states like big comparative advantage what does it do better than the rest of the world or what drives the u.s economy right now it's basically tech right like you know like it's not cars anymore it's not you know this other stuff um and so if tech is like the big prize then the fact that tiktok in particular is this thing that was completely indigenous to another country's tech industry came over and took over the United States, you know, whatever, consumer base. Um, that is, that's the big fear that this could be the beginning of the end or the beginning of some protracted war. So mm. I think that this does kind of help explain why this was such a story. Instead, like, why is this app, which has just like silly videos of teenagers doing silly things, such a like serious thing, you know, for, for, for people to take seriously um, in DC. Um, I think the contrast between like innovation versus he's basically saying the United States is rentier, right? They basically, which we talked yep. about, like the basically also applies to the nursing industry, right? The the yeah. um, nursing facilities that these people who make money look for ways to just hold on to their streams of profit without investing and innovating and making things better. Mm. I think that's a fair distinction to make. I don't know if it's completely accurate, but I think these are int interesting, like categories to have in mind when we kind of read the news about like what's going on in the United States, what's going on in the rest of the world. Because I think a lot of the United States economy is rentier 
in ways that we don't think about. Like he kind of later on, he talks about how Silicon Valley, we think of Silicon Valley, we think of places like big innovations or like what Facebook, Uber, like those are not cutting edge technologies. Those are just like rentier ways of just amassing profit by, yeah. capture, by capturing an audience and then making them, you know, monopolizing their, you know, access to cars or their access to like your friend's high school pictures or whatever, right? So um, that's not that's not cutting edge, right? In, in, his, in his notion of a real economy. So I don't know, those are some that's of like basic point. reactions I had. Like, what, Tammy, what'd you think? I was struck by what he was saying about how um, his description of how China ha- now want, ha- wants to have this concerted strategy to retool. I thought that they had been sort of doing that all along, honestly. <laughs> I mean, maybe he's talking yeah. about something much more massive. I don't know. But, you know, um, it just seems to have been a Chinese development model like 20 years in the works. The The thought process was always we need to learn from the rest of the world but to do so in a way that we're not just being exploited. We're going to, that's why we have these like restrictions on if you're going to open a business in China, you need a Chinese partner. So you can't just treat us like, uh, and it's not racist or anything. You can't just treat us like a Southeast Asian country, which is just like, they just, they just open the gates and let these foreign companies do whatever they want. So uh, the goal was always, we're going to copy the rest of the world and then we're going to out innovate them. And the fear yeah. is the fear yeah. from the United States it's, perspective. And, is and so the fear is like, yeah. are they at the out innovate part now yeah. after years of copying? And I think TikTok is interesting in that way because, like, it's it like, can you imagine, ten years ago, TikTok would have come out and people would have been like, oh, it's a piece of shit, oh, that's cute, and then some American firm would have just made a better version of it and everyone would use that, right? And it is different when the U.S. has to basically be defensive about this thing and invent a bunch of like stupid lies about it and then kneecap it in the way that, you know, this guy said, but not also get rid of it. Like it's still there. You know, there's no American version that they came out with that's gonna be better. You know, it's sort of like the Zune versus the iPod, like, you know, like the Zune versus the iPod or something like that, where you're like, look, Zune can do whatever (laughs) it wants, Microsoft, I guess, right? But like, I'm sorry, like, you know, people are just gonna use the iPod. this is a terrible analogy. I apologize, but like you, know, like you yeah. get it, right? Like that, that it seems like the in- superior technology or the superior platform at this point, <laughs> the superior product at this point is, is the one that's going to be used, and that you're you're not going to get people off of it. It's the same thing as like you know Zoom, which we're talking about right now, versus like all the other stuff that's owned by gigantic American firms, whether Google or Microsoft or whatever. It's like people just aren't going to use it, and you know, like it doesn't matter what money they put behind it, what sort of promotion they do. The only thing they could possibly do is destroy Zoom, right? And so if that's happening with a Chinese tech company, I don't know, it, it does seem like a bellwether moment to me. Like it, or not, a, I keep saying bellwether. It does seem like a transition moment to me, like where this is like maybe the first thing that we can think about outside of Android phones or something like that, right? Yeah. Where, um, where there is a fight and the only real response that we have is to try and destroy the competitor yeah. from China. Yeah. Is that is that does that seem accurate to you, Andy? Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's predetermined that you know one's going to rise, one's going to fall. But if you were to describe how does a falling empire react poorly to competition, you would basically be yeah. describing the Trump administration, you know. <laughs> um, and I don't know if the yeah. press are any better. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like like how much of the analysis do you think is specific yeah. to the particular actions of Trump? I think was a question I was kept thinking about yeah. because you know the his whatever execution of a tariff or whatever. I mean, some of that is kind of is echoed in critiques of 
what Obama did or did not do. And I just, it's unclear what, how Biden will approach these same questions. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, yeah. I don't know. Is, are they going to pour way more money into like R&D? I mean, I don't know what the ideas are there, but. Um, I don't think they will because, I mean, I guess it depends, right? Like what, how long is it going to take to, how much manpower will it take to dig everyone out of coronavirus? You know, yeah. will it take any or is it? And then how much of that is going to be built on basically just upgrading in existing infrastructure so yeah. that, you know, stuff like the fucking Bay Area doesn't burn every year, yeah. you know? And, and it seems like, I don't know, it seems like there are more pressing questions. I don't think that anybody talked on the campaign trail about like reinvesting in America's no, you know, that's the Silicon Valley or anything like that, or well, you know, losing out to China in these ways, right? Like it was basically just more racist versions yeah. of that, I guess. But um, I don't, I don't think Silicon Valley would win the a, votes. But the criticism was always like the Democrats never have an economic vision, and they let Trump just monopolize that whole conversation, even though he's making yeah. up craziness, right? But you know, yeah. they're just like, well, coal coal miners can like run solar panels now or something. That's like the only thing they ever say about yeah. um, an economic vision. I think, I mean, one thing that Biden oh, could easily mine. do is and just It's like, one thing Andrew Yang was very right about, by the way, right? Say what? He's like, you can't, there's one thing Andrew Yang, I think, is very right yeah. about where he's basically like, they're just saying, hey, the truck drivers can go work somewhere else. You're like, you can't just do that. You know, like you can't just say, they're not like, they're not like interchangeable parts where you just plug it in and then it works like yeah people with years and years of experience and you know uh entire outlook on life is shaped by this one industry and you take it away and they're like why don't you go put some solar panels on rich people's houses <laughs> like like fucking crazy yeah well but i think Doesn't the green work. new deal speaks to some of these concerns but it's true that Definitely. we still don't have a kind of totalizing vision of you know an economic policy and I mean, the most logical thing, even outside of this tech question, would be to return to what we were talking about up top with the... Sorry, there's an alarm. Well, what's going there's on? There's a kidnapping in my area. Amber um, alert? <laughs> Am, are, are, Tammy, are you back in New York? No, I'm in Washington State. Sorry. Oh, and there's okay. some sort of child that's been kidnapped all day. <laughs> Amber <laughs> alarms, alert. I'm sorry. Oh, no. Um, but I was just going to say, like, I mean, the logical thing right now would obviously be to have like a national jobs program in response to like infrastructure challenges. At least that would echo some of this guy's critique around like, like real economy that doesn't go to R&D, though, for sure. But we don't even have that kind of ambition to talk about, like, why don't we just fix the bridges that are going to collapse tomorrow? Fix the bridges. Or apparently America's Internet is really bad. Do you guys know this? Like, yeah. Yeah, like apparently, yeah. Yeah. my internet's my internet's terrible, and it's so expensive. Like people can't afford yeah. it. But if it was like made a public utility and they actually like sure. write down good files or whatever it's called, like that would be great. That's what they did in Korea, and you know, it's uh, the people think it's responsible for a lot of stuff. Yeah. You know, so that's like a new, including that's a new like deal, the entire esports dominance of Korea. Yeah, but obviously, other more important things in esports dominance <laughs> is because of <laughs> the availability of the availability of high speed. Internet. I just, you know, I just have I, I did the same thing with the nursing homes where whenever these questions are breached, maybe I'm just like old and hopeless, but like, I just like, how are they going to do it? You know, how are they like, I agree. I think that internet should be a public utility yeah. and that it's that that will improve everything, including the internet, you know, <laughs> um, <laughs> like I won't have to be mad at Zencaster because the internet in my basement sucks. But at the same time, it's just like, I don't know, what are you going to do? Nah, I think, you know, there's, yeah. there's no way to do it outside of like a 
basic revolution or something. You get, you get, like you get people on your side. That's the first step. And then, you know, beyond that, it's beyond our control, obviously. But yeah. Um, yeah, I don't we know. We should talk I, about uh, the basic revolution, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Next yeah. time. Yeah, we're we're making our evolution past Bernie Sanders and into just like full on revolution, like uh, full on revolutionary politics to improve the internet. <laughs> it's, it's very internet niche. <laughs> I did. I mean, I did think one thing Biden could easily do is stop the visa, stop visa policies, and just like okay, fine. But it's hard to like. Is he doing that? Say what? Is he doing that? Do, do I think like I mean like it seems like a lot of the immigration stuff is like on hold, right? I feel like he the Democrats' position has always been like we're really pro super educated model minorities coming to Silicon Valley, and and working yeah. for us, and I, so that's that's not controversial within the centrist wing of Democrats, right? And that is one no, way to capitalize all. upon the fact that you're falling behind in education and science, just steal other people's model minorities, you know. <laughs> yep, 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 yep. Be the brain yeah. drain recipient. Yeah, I mean, I know, this is if I like support American yeah. Empire, which I don't necessarily. I know. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think they'll. I do think they'll get rid of the Muslim ban on day one. If they don't, I'm gonna fucking run out in the streets and you know find some of my fellow Berkeleyans and go, you know, make some signs and go scream at somebody. I think I it is going to right. Yeah. I mean, he. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if he doesn't, then it's such a it's just a, it would be I, such spitting in the face of all the people who went out to pro, you know like all the people who went out not just that day but also like all the days when that stuff thing was being discussed and really made like a you know that's what the aclu has like nine billion more dollars because of that like all, all those things i think he has to i mean you know it's like that and that and the kids in cages are the two big emotional things that he can overturn on day one you know and um if he doesn't then i don't know words will be had all right okay well i think that's it we're at a, um we're like at an hour 40 which will come down but thank you for listening to our show andy tammy you don't have anything else to say right do you want to do your favorite book sammy or Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Well, someone a okay. listener had asked us to talk about favorite books or podcasts from this year, so I was curious if Ooh, you guys have things idea. to share. Favorite books, oh. Andy. What about you? What's your favorite book? Mine's gonna be the nerdiest. So I don't. I feel like I should not start off. Okay, Tammy, <laughs> no, what's why? your favorite what's book? Wrong with that? Tammy, what's yours? Well, I was just gonna point out a couple of James Baldwin essays I read this year. Um, they're the essays from when he was in in Europe. And like one of them, I liked in particular called "Stranger in the Village" about his um, some time in Swiss in Switzerland. That's great. That's yeah, great. it's just really um, beautiful. And you know, I think in this time when we're thinking a lot about like alienation and just belonging, like yeah, yeah, it was like very instructive and helpful for me. So I wanted to recommend that, and it's short. Um, Andy, what about you? What, what's this nerdy book that you liked? Mm, I was trying to think because all I do all day is read super specialized stuff. But this one is probably, I think, um, uh, you know, it's, it's it's good and accessible, and it's also kind of ties into the theme of um, our episode with Sarah Leonard. The essay I should have actually prepared. It's an essay by um, the philosopher Nancy Fraser that I taught this year, um, and I'd read it before, but I reread it. And I thought it was great again. Uh, something about second wave feminism and neoliberalism, where she makes the argument that uh, 
I think it's a basic argument that we shouldn't. It's kind of this warning against woke, woke culture, but it's framed in this very sophisticated argument about historically, like second wave feminism. Coincidentally, arises at the same time as neoliberalism. Oh yeah. And we te- we tend not to think of these as the same thing, but and we you know we're just kind of like instinctively like pro feminist and anti capitalist, but we don't think about there's this sort of uneasy coincidence historically between the two and that should make us rethink like what 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 about what is it about feminism we want to hold on to and not hold on to in capitalism and so on um and that made me really rethink like the possibilities of what you could do with all this new stuff about neoliberalism that's coming out and not make it just mm. about economic policy but about things we think about like you know betty friedan and like the sort of like classical canonical 1960s 70s women's movement didn't happen in a vacuum it was also happening at a time when companies were happy to have a, a huge labor force a huge labor pool so that they could de- depress wages and yeah and 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 justify you know if both of you are making money then we don't have to pay you as much as before which you know leads to some uncomfortable conclusions that are i think are worth thinking about um yeah i, I should look up that title and i think it's in the nancy Fraser reader that um Verso put out in case anyone wants to order it. It's very good. Um, Jay. I don't know. I didn't really. I just read. I just read history books and biographies of athletes and musicians. So what yeah, do you like? like a, That's great. Oh, uh, I don't know. They're all like kind of bad and trashy in their own way. But then I still like them because. Uh, like I don't know. I read this biography of Mavis Staples that I liked. Oh, that cool. A lot of it was about like her relationship with bob dylan you know um and a lot of it was about why like what happened in chicago at that period of time when the staples family moved um into a neighborhood where like sam cook lived and um you know a lot of other very famous soul singers and how the great migration created this sound there's all these different people moving to chicago from the south and who were first in blues, Southern black blues music moving and then inter- like sort of like kind of intermingling with the gospel music that was happening up in Chicago. You know, people like Mahalia Jackson and how that created. It's a great, it's a good book. Is it? You know, Mavis Staples comes out of it. What? Did you read Move On Up by Aaron Cohen or is it something else? No, who's that? Okay. It sounds like. Is that about Mavis too, Staples? But... Oh yeah. I have an endless fascination with that period of music just because I think it's the best music that, uh, the world has produced, you know, but also it's like, um, I don't know. It was, it was good in that it also showed the evolution beyond that. Right. So it wasn't just like one of these things. It's like history is important and then gets rid of, you know, the actual story goes away. It's just kind of like, um, it's not like a kind of tablet handed down. It talks about them as real people. And, you know, um, the parts with Dylan are kind of interesting just because he really did influence the way that they thought about popular music and then like crossing over, right? Which they didn't really do until, and it's really weird to think of like a gospel group, which the staple singers certainly were. It's like a family gospel group. Yeah. Uh, and really, they didn't really cross over until Take You There, which, you know, is a song everybody knows. Like, I know a place, you know, there's like eight, there's eight words and it's one of the best songs ever written. But uh, Strong they uh, essay energy coming out of Jay. <laughs> yeah. So I've been reading a lot of books like that. Uh, read a lot of biographies of boxers. Right now I'm reading like this totally dickish one that I think is right, but is basically recasting 
Ollie versus Frazier. And this is sort of now the new hipster, not even hipster, it's like sort of the new consensus on Ollie versus Frazier was that Ollie was really an asshole, you know? And that Ollie was like super racist towards Frazier in a way. Mm-hmm. And that basically Ollie was always enabled by a group of like people like Norman Mailer or like, uh, um, or, or uh, what's the guy's name? George Plimpton, all these sort of like mm-hmm. fuddy-duddy white guys from New York City who thought of him as his prophet. Mm-hmm. But in actuality, he wasn't that. And the guy who wrote it is a guy who was around Ali throughout this period of time and just obviously hates him. Yeah. It's an interesting read. Um, Ali certainly was turned into a saint more than Ali deserved to be a saint, especially on matters of race. Right. Like, like he was pretty regressive. I don't know how you feel about the nation of Islam and Elijah Muhammad, but you know, I don't know, in my opinion, not great. (laughs) You know, and, and, uh, and then, but there's also stuff that's like a little uncomfortable where it's just like, you know, like Ali's IQ was 75, you know, yeah. he's been tested a few times his IQ was 75. And so like the guy's basically just saying he was an idiot, <laughs> you know, wow. um, and that, that he's being manipulated the whole time by Elijah Muhammad right. and Elijah Muhammad didn't give a shit about right. him. And that all the stuff that he wrote and that he said that everyone says like, oh, wow, look at how magnetic he is. You know, it's all written by Bandini Brown. And so I don't know. It's like a trashy book in the sense that, like, <laughs> it's just straight mean gossip. But I don't know. I still like Ali, and I don't feel like this guy is, like, that be-all, end-all. But certainly the stuff that Ali did with Frasier, where he's, like, has a little plastic monkey and is, like, a gorilla and is, like, calling yeah, him the gorilla and, like, waving in his face because cause Frasier has dark skin. Like, that shit is, like, you know, nobody like nobody talks about yeah. this stuff. Should be discussed, yeah. you know? Like Frazier, it it destroyed Frazier to to have that the most popular athlete in America, this man who's seen as this like political savant on the on the level of Gandhi or something like that, basically just be like this horrific racist towards him. Um, and I think that the author of the book was so like mad about it that he wrote this whole he wrote like several books about about this. So I'm reading one of them. Um, yeah, that's what that's mostly my reading these days. We should have an episode in, where we just take down idols. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there's a lot that I could get started with. Um, okay, um, good. Thank you for listening to our show. You can always contact us at time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com or TTSG pod and Twitter. Or you can go to any of our individual Twitters and DM us and we should just share the messages thank you as always for um the emails including the one that asked us to talk about the books that we read that we like this year i also read the rachel cusk books i don't know i don't know how oh, yeah about tammy did you read those? we talked about this and i was just it's like fine <laughs> it's very well written. it's fine we did talk about it because my friend dm it is like i agree with the rachel cusk take or maybe he did disagree but yeah it's something we talked about <laughs> Uh, she's a great writer, you know. Um, I, I don't have to ever read only read one, so I can't. Um, okay, and we will see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>